This is Archive Atlanta, episode 66, Pittsburgh. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week we have a story about one of Atlanta's oldest neighborhoods. The people who settled it, the buildings they built, and what stories these streets have to tell. Pittsburgh's proximity to the Beltline has brought new residents and new development, so I wanted to make sure that its past, both the good and the bad, can be shared with all. Let's start by orienting ourselves. The Pittsburgh neighborhood lies above Capitol View Manor, which I covered in episode 28. It's just to the east from Adair Park, south of Mechanicsville, and it's bordered on the right side by railroad tracks. The bottom right-hand corner is bisected by I-85, or the connector, and that's actually the oldest portion of the neighborhood. The story of Pittsburgh is very similar to the story of Reynolds Town from Episode 8. That neighborhood is earlier, starting in the 1860s, but just like Pittsburgh, it was settled and started by Black rail workers. Even before the Civil War, enslaved men were used to build railroads across America, Some positions could be black or white men, but slaves were used exclusively for physically intensive jobs like building track, train maintenance, and brakemen. In 1864, Atlanta, the Civil War had just ended, and almost all of the rail lines were destroyed. Rebuilding was a priority, and that job fell to newly emancipated black Atlantans. This was not easy work. Brakeman sounds... Kind of like a cool word in 2020, but before automatic brakes, in order to stop a moving train, you had to turn a wheel inside each individual car to stop it. To get from car to car, they would hop along the top. And it's not until the invention of what's called knuckle couples and air brakes that white men even considered this position. As I said earlier, the right side boundary of Pittsburgh is railroad, and the male residents here did that work and female residents were mainly domestic laborers, which is pretty much the only available job for black women. Fulton County is carved out of the western half of DeKalb County in 1853. Two land lots made up Pittsburgh, land lot 86 and 87. For reference, the standard size of these lots that were auctioned off were about 202.5 acres, so we're talking about an area that's roughly 400 acres. We don't have a lot of ownership information from the creation of the lots on, but in 1883, Landlot 86 is purchased by a white female real estate speculator named Julia Boardman. This was really fascinating to me to have a woman in the real estate business in that year is extremely rare. Um, Sadly, I wasn't able to find many details about her, so if anyone out there listening knows definitely contact me. But anyway, I assume she buys this land because in that same year, the East Tennessee, Virginia, and Georgia Railroad set up like a little rail center with maintenance shops um, and industry shops. And so people come. Julia hires civil engineer C.H. Strong to subdivide her land into 90 small and narrow lots. The 1892 aerial that I love to wax poetic about, that also, by the way, I have framed in my living room right now, it shows the roundhouse and the rail shops um, that spurred the creation of this neighborhood. Because of the proximity to the rail yard, Pittsburgh was described as smoky, grimy, and with an atmosphere of a railroad town. A lot like its namesake, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that's how and why it was named so. A streetcar ran down McDaniel Street, which is basically down the center of the neighborhood. 
two streets here, McDaniel and Ira, both get their name from a man named Ira Oliver McDaniel, who was a cotton merchant, founded the Intelligencer newspaper, and incorporated a bank and two railroads. Before the electric streetcars come, this line was horse and mule drawn. Legal segregation of the streetcar would come in 1892, but the neighborhood was still racially mixed. Now, a lot of people don't realize that the housing self-segregation kind of happens after the 1906 race riot, and then Atlanta tries many attempts at legalized racial zoning between 1910 and 1920. So in 1902, the electric streetcar comes to Pittsburgh, and of course that makes things much more efficient um, and much more attractive for people to take. It's running down McDaniel Street, it's also running down Stewart Avenue, which is now Metropolitan, and then across on University Avenue. There's actually an incredible building on the very northern border of Pittsburgh called the Stewart Avenue Trolley Substation. It's from about 1920, um, could be earlier, because 1920 is kind of a base year that they say buildings are built in when they really are older. But it's Italian Renaissance Revival, and it's one of only three or four of these substations that we have left. So it's a great connection to the streetcar um, and just gives you an idea of, you know, what it, what it might have been like in those days. I've mentioned many times in other neighborhood episodes, but the streetcar, especially an electrified streetcar, is a game changer. Populations usually increase as well as businesses. And you see this in Pittsburgh along Lower McDaniel Street. In the first decade of the 20th century, it becomes the main commercial corridor. What I found really interesting is that although the residents remain majority black, again with some white residents, most of the shop owners were Jewish and they lived in bordering neighborhoods. 1902 is also a big year for Pittsburgh in a negative way. It marked a day-long riot between a former white Atlanta police officer and a former black inmate, both living just blocks from each other. And this is a big, important story. Um, and it's it not only emotionally scarred the neighborhood, but it also physically scarred um, one entire block. I had only seen this mentioned once in writing, so for me, this was like a small foray into investigative journalism. I mean, as much as you can get from historic newspaper sources written by white men, but you get what I'm saying. Learning this um, also helped me better understand the story of the 1906 uh, race riot. So, you know, you can when you see these previous stories and you're like, oh, this only happened, you know, four years be- before this other big thing, it just further confirms the belief that all of our issues are not new. Even in Atlanta, in Pittsburgh in 1902, they're dealing with questions of police brutality, um, racial violence, you know, stuff that we're talking about now. So I want to lead with some important notes before telling the story. All of the articles I found were really in the Atlanta Constitution, and they were not kind to the Black people involved in the story. Um, So it's only when I started to search the officer's names did I find out his previous history. The main characters here um, is Samuel A. Curlin. He's a former Atlanta police officer. He was white, and he lived at 352 McDaniel Street. Now, back in 1893, while on the force, Curlin attempts to arrest a man named Eugene Carroll down at the corner of Decatur Street and Peachtree. So right around where that Walgreens is at the corner of Woodruff Park. Even more crazy connection is this is about the same corner that the 1906 race riot starts. But this is four years prior, 
uh, and a crowd of about a hundred people gather and they call for the release of his prisoner. Curlin claims that, you know, somebody touched him or somebody punched him and he kind of swings around blindly with his billy club, hitting a Mr. Mesdick so hard that the man probably had a concussion but was also bleeding from his mouth. And it becomes this big game of he said, she said, you know, Curlin's like, hey, he grabbed me. But all 100 people in the crowd are like, no, no one touched him. I mean, he just turned around and hit this man. The guy sues him and ends up going to court. And during the trial, the judge ends up fining Curlin. um, And he's like, hey, while your arrest was legal, you were very dangerously close to starting a riot. In 1889, Curlin attempts to arrest a black man named Tom Green at the corner of Mary Street and McDaniel Street. So this is in the Pittsburgh neighborhood. Now, Green had a warrant, but the thing is, Curlin was not on duty. He's not in uniform. And he's actually just leaving his house to yell at some kids for being loud or something like that when he sees Green. A crowd of 200 Pittsburgh residents gathers around and they fight to regain Green from Curlin's custody. Rocks are thrown and at least two black men and two black women are arrested and charged with participating in the mob. And actually two white men are charged with not helping Curlin arrest the suspect. During the trial, the court reporter is actually quoted as telling them, quote, it is the duty of every law-abiding citizen to help an officer make an arrest when called upon to do so, end quote. The following year, this is 1900, Curlin arrests two young girls for wearing men's clothing. Just a few months later, he's suspended from the force for 30 days for leaving his shift to, quote, go to a woman's house to attend other business, end quote. I think we all know what that means. In 1901, Curlin is once again off-duty in Pittsburgh, and he calls a fellow police officer to say that a black man named Buck Jones was cursing in the presence of his wife. Officer Rosser attempts to arrest Buck, and a group of residents arrives again and attempts to free him. Shots are exchanged. So there is some background facts for you, right? Um, Here is a man that's living in the neighborhood, but there has been tension and animosity for years. And remember, these are just the stories that were sensational enough to make it to print in the newspaper. On May 15th, 1902, Samuel Curlin is listed as an ex-police officer. He's returning on the trolley from a night in Fort McPherson when he is jumped by four black men. Curlin identifies one of the men as Will Richardson. Two days later, on Sunday, May 17th, Pittsburgh would see the death of seven men and the destruction of an entire block of the neighborhood. It starts with Mr. Curlin, and he's walking down the street, and he sees Richardson, who is a Pittsburgh resident and owner of a store. Richardson fires three shots and runs to hide inside his store and kind of barricades himself in there. Fulton County police are called because this is not yet Atlanta. Um, So that's kind of another thing. People are like, is this city limits? Is it not city limits? Um, But it wasn't. So three officers arrive, a former bailiff, and they charge the store. At this point, Richardson is inside. He's barricaded in there um, with two or three other people. Shots are fired back and forth. And this is like a Wild West shootout. I mean, the descriptions are bullets are flying. People are, you know, hiding around corners of buildings and trying to run out and getting shot. Something out of a movie. It would go on for almost the entire day with the death of the two county officers, one City of Atlanta officer, that one bailiff, 
and then three African-American Pittsburgh residents. The details are pretty gruesome, and you know maybe one day I'll do a mini-episode on it or something, but Will Richardson and his friends are driven from his store by having it set on fire. His burned body is dragged to the edge of the Atlanta city limits, so it's dragged about two blocks, where the city coroner is waiting to retrieve the body. It was reported that 15,000 people visited the site when they heard what happened. The governor ends up calling the military um, just to maintain peace and make sure there's no rioting. There was a hand-drawn map um, I found in the newspaper articles that details where this all took place. So it's really interesting to have it kind of layered on top or next to an aerial photograph of the current neighborhood. So I'll have that up on social media if you guys want to take a look. On a lighter topic, let's talk about education. I'm not sure if this counts, but in 1871, long before Pittsburgh became Pittsburgh, Clark College moves to a location at Whitehall and McDaniel Streets, which today is just on the northern edge of the neighborhood. But officially in the border or not, the connections with Clark and Pittsburgh will continue for many years to come. In 1902, the first formal school, the Pittsburgh Grammar School, begins in the church building of Ariel Bowen AME. The community raises funds, and in 1909, the Atlanta Board of Education throws $75 in, and they fund the rest of the money to build a building at the corner of Ira and Mary. In that same year, 1909, the Atlanta Theological Seminary buys property from a man named Josiah Sherman to establish their school campus. The seminary was founded in 1901, and it's one of the first theological institutions in the South to admit women. In 1929, the seminary moves to Nashville, and they sell the campus to the Salvation Army, which is its current owner. So the Salvation Army's Southern Training College is there. And they actually started in Atlanta in the 20s on Lucky Street, so kind of further downtown. Um, What's unique is there are only four schools like this in the nation. One of the consequences of the 1906 race riot was informal self-segregation. Basically, people who lived through that were like, listen, I'm going to live over here, you live over there, we're not going to cross paths. And it was after this that most of the white families in Pittsburgh moved out, and then the neighborhood became almost exclusively black, at least in the 80% range. The corridor of Stewart Avenue, again now metropolitan, remained white for many years to come. And this is why Pittsburgh, it's not really included in conversations about white flight in the 50s and 60s. They essentially had their white flight at the turn of the century. By 1910, Atlanta finally annexed the land and the neighborhood inside its city limits. Annexation usually coincides with building booms, and in the 1920s, Pittsburgh would get a school and an orphanage. The William H. Krogman School was built in 1922 on land donated by Clark College. It was named for the first black president of Clark and designed by architect A. Tenike Brown. Not only does this building still stand today, but it has been repurposed as condos. And something I bet most people don't know, especially if you live there, is that Alberta King, mother of Dr. King, was a teacher at the school before she got married to Daddy King and then gave birth to Atlanta's famous son. Five years after that school is built, the Cary Steele Orphan Home moves over to Roy Street. Cary's story is incredible. I don't have time to get that deep into it, but again, probably something for another mini episode in the future. 
After working as what was called a janitress or a female janitor at the Union Passenger Depot, she notices the need for a home for black orphans, at first keeping them in a rail car during the day and then she brings them home to Auburn Avenue at night. In 1892, the orphanage opens on what is now Memorial Drive. And Carrie dies in 1900, but in 1928, the organization moves to its new home in Pittsburgh. Today, that site where the orphanage was is the W.L. Parks Junior High, um, but the Carrie Steel Pits home is still open, it still exists, and it's now on Fairburn Road. It's the South, so we can't have a neighborhood episode without talking about churches. The oldest in Pittsburgh was established in 1904, and it's called the Ariel Bowen United Methodist Church. Their current building is a little newer. It's on Arthur Street, and it was built in 1939. Other churches like Southside Springfield um, and Iconium Baptist, they're from like the late 40s and early 50s. Although I said earlier that Pittsburgh didn't have the same level of white flight, um, it was not spared from urban renewal and the interstates. I've mentioned the 1947 Lochner Report, I think it was in Summerhill, but that was basically a plan that decided where Atlanta's new highways and interstates were going to go. And where they went was mainly through minority or low-income neighborhoods, places that were deemed undesirable. Pittsburgh fared better in comparison to neighboring like Summerhill, for example, but it did lose about 30 homes along Fortress Avenue, which now you can see on a map, butts right up against the downtown connector. Just two years later, urban renewal comes to town along with the Housing Act. To summarize, land is cleared or housing demolished with the promise of new government-backed housing to be built in its place. But in Pittsburgh, these promises are made in 1949, things are cleared, but funding to actually build does not come until 1969. So let that sink in. We're talking 20 years. And that period is when the nation is going through a huge housing shortage, which I have stated many times before was particularly dire for Black Atlantans. In the late 1940s, the city dealt with increased racial tensions, which I've talked about before in episodes about the Colombians or the KKK. And the Colombians, which were the first post-World War II neo-Nazi group in America, were formed in Atlanta, and they terrorized Black families in Pittsburgh, Mechanicsville, and Washington Park. On November 2, 1947, the Jones family, who was Black, attempted to move into a home that was previously rented by a white family. Over 50 members of the Colombians went to Garibaldi Street, and they flooded the entire road. They held up signs that said, quote-unquote, white zone. The residents of Pittsburgh, though, they'd not be intimidated. Um, so although housing was needed for decades to come, it was really interesting. There was like a local civic league that kind of took matters into their own hands and built apartments um, into the early 70s. I usually don't go into recent news, but everyone in Atlanta knows about the Beltline and the development projects that are happening because of it. Pittsburgh Yards is being constructed as I record this, um, and for those that were curious about the history of the land, I wanted to end with that story. The most southern portion of the neighborhood boundary, 8,000 acres were owned by Clark College, which was used as farmland for students who were studying agriculture or blacks. And I talked about this in Capital View because it was really um, them that sold the land to the railroad 
to essentially create what we are now using as a belt line. But in the 1940s, they sell this specific section to the Southern Trucking Terminal. Um, and it was a huge, you know, they claim like the biggest in the country. Um, and that, you know, employed many people in the neighborhood for a very long time. But when industry leaves, along with the jobs, the site stood unused for many decades. So it's exciting to see that this is kind of coming to life again in 2020. So there you have it, the story of Pittsburgh. Thank you guys for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes and leave a rating or a review. I know I say this all the time, but there is nothing I love more than reading your comments or your emails. Um, Sometimes it's just like one email and the subject line says, love your podcast. I love those just as much. Um, Connecting with listeners and hearing what you guys have to say never gets old. So I'm actually working on a way to hear more of your stories um, and stay tuned for that. Have a great weekend and I'll see you next week.